0: Uh, we are so delighted that you're here, as I said earlier, and I'm going to preach from here because I've got, I, I can't really see still everybody, but maybe I can move around a little bit so I can see different ones. So let's go ahead and put that first slide up for my sermon because it's kind of an unusual sermon title that I've come up with today. You'd think that you come to church on Easter and it's all about holding on to Jesus, but today's sermon is actually going to be about letting go of Jesus. And the sermon, before I get there, I want to tell you about a story of death and burial and resurrection that is not the most important story about death and burial and resurrection, but it happens to be one of the most recent for me. And it happened really this past Friday, but its beginnings goes back 60 years As you heard, this is our 150th anniversary, and so we have worshiped in four different buildings, and the third one was downtown where BB&T is located now. When that building was raised, and the church moved here in the 1950s, there were a number of stained glass windows, among other things, that the church wanted to preserve. And through the years, we found places for a number of them to be put into the building, if you go into the Rowell Welcome Center, or into Boston Memorial Hall, you'll see some of our stained glass windows. But two have remained down there buried in what we like to call the dungeon. It's the only place in the church other than the restrooms underneath our narthex where there's a full basement, and it's a tall basement. And so every once in a while, somebody will want to go down there and see. what. It's just HVAC equipment, except that's where we stick stuff, especially big stuff, that we don't know what else to do with. And there are still two stained glass windows in the dungeon that have been buried down there for 60 years. And they look like this when they're down there. I might need help from the back, so if it doesn't click for me, there we go. So they've been down there, and the reason that they intrigue me is that the one on the left is the parable of the sower. I'll come back to that in a moment. The one on the right is actually today's story from John chapter 20. It's the story of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And I've always admired them and thought, you know, isn't there somewhere we can figure, that, figure out where to put them? This coming Tuesday, we're getting ready to start demolition in this building over there, on this end toward Rao Welcome Center. We will uh, take the old elementary school classrooms and begin clearing them out so that we can put the offices there. And then after that happens, we'll renovate the, the current offices for elementary school classrooms. So it's going to be kind of a swap. But at any rate, I'm trying to figure out in this renovation, is there somewhere we can pull these uh, stained glass windows out of the basement and use them? So on Friday, I thought, well, I wonder what they would really look like if there were a lot of light behind them. And I, I've got my friend Joe Candilas who does a lot of video. Bring one of your big bright lights down there and show me. Let's see if we can get a good picture of the window. So now I want you to keep your eye right there on the right. This is Mary Magdalene and Jesus. But when you put a light behind it, this is what it looks like. So look at the colors in there that have been buried for all of these years. And when I started looking at this the other day and seeing the images that are there, it helped me see this story in a whole different way. One of the pieces that fascinated me about this stained glass window is that there are no scars on Jesus' feet or his hands. Now, If you look right above there, you will see in our current stained glass window, there's a scar on his feet And also, you can barely see it on the one hand. You can see it more on his right hand on our left. So that was kind of interesting to me, and I started wondering, why do they not have scars there? There are two stories in the Gospels where Jesus' scars appear. One is when Thomas doesn't believe that he's actually seeing Jesus, and Jesus says, go ahead, put your finger in these nail prints and your hand in my side— and the other is the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who are also, they meet Jesus by seeing his scars. And I've always heard and read that Jesus' scars are permanent, but there's a sense in which that kind of bothered me. So we had a discussion this week, does that mean that all of Jesus' wounds from the cross? You know, he was scourged down to his, probably down to his, uh, down to his bones on his back. Does Jesus bear all of the scars forever from the crucifixion? And if that's true, when we have our resurrection body, do we have scars that we had in life? Or if you die in a car wreck, do you keep those scars for eternity? Because if this is Jesus' resurrection body, so this was a, that's always kind of bothered me, but this was a new wrinkle. Is it possible that Jesus' scars are not always visible, that they were visible when Thomas needed to see them or they were visible when the disciples on the Emmaus Road needed to see them. But if Jesus has this resurrection body, can't scars come and go as they please? And maybe on this Sunday morning, when that would have probably frightened Mary greatly, maybe on that Sunday morning there were actually no scars there, and he appeared to her sort of completely whole and normal. I don't know. But one of the things that artwork does is it causes you to look at a story that is familiar and see it with fresh eyes. So whether that piece works for you or or not is not my point. My point is that I want you to see and hear the story of Jesus encountering Mary Magdalene with ears and eyes that maybe you are exposed to some things that you have not seen before. So I'm going to leave that image up while we talk a little bit more about this story. And I'm just going to tell you again this familiar story, but maybe try to pull out some things that might be helpful or fresh. When we open John chapter 20, we uh, first of all come to some introductory words. First of all, it is the first Day of the week. That tells us it's been 36 hours since Jesus was on the cross and he was laid into the tomb. So it's been a while there. So for 36 hours, and those 36 hours, Mary Magdalene and all of Jesus' disciples and everybody had to just wait according to their Jewish law and tradition. They couldn't do anything, they certainly couldn't go near the graveside. So imagine what that's been like. This is now the first day of the week. When they appear. Second thing we learn is that it's still dark. A theme in John's gospel is darkness to light. So this is what John is saying. Mary is in the dark in more ways than one. She doesn't realize everything that's happened. And then we're introduced to this character named Mary Magdalene. And one of the ways in which I want you to see this story and hear this story with fresh eyes and ears is you need to kind of set aside some of your conceptions about Mary Magdalene if they've come from sources that are not helpful or reliable. For example, I hope you didn't get your story about Mary Magdalene from Dan Brown, who says that she was actually married to Jesus and they had a family together. No historical evidence for that whatsoever. But I also hope you didn't get your image of Mary Magdalene from the medieval church, which which said frequently that she was identified with the sinful woman or the prostitute who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. There's nowhere in the Gospels where it suggests that this is the same person. That person is not named, and indeed Mary Magdalene was not a sinful woman in that sense of the word. Luke only tells one other story about Mary Magdalene, and he tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, but John doesn't even tell that story. So all we know in John's gospel, if if this is your whole uh, version of what Jesus is doing and saying, all we know is that she was at the crucifixion, and she was there on Sunday morning. That's all we know, and her name. And Magdalene just means that she was from a town named Magdala. In fact, all four Gospels name her, she's the only person named by all four evangelists as being both at the cross and at the empty tomb, which tells me she's a really important person because all of the traditions that emerged about Christianity, wherever the Gospel was told, Mary Magdalene was there at the crucifixion and she's there at the resurrection. So now we know this person, all we know is that subsequently she became very significant, but we don't really know a lot about her life. So we know that she was there on Friday afternoon, and now we know that she is there before dark on Sunday morning. Now, when John tells this story, most of this story is told in the present tense. In your Bible, it probably doesn't read that way. It reads in the past tense, but this is John's way of making this a very vivid story. So he says that early in the morning, Mary Magdalene gets up, present tense, and goes to the tomb. And when she goes to the tomb, and for the sake of today, let's just say there's a secret passage over here, and this is going to be our tomb over here. So Mary Magdalene, it's still dark outside, and she goes to the tomb, and she realizes when she gets there that the stone has been rolled away. Now, again, the other gospel writers do different things with that, but all, she, all we know from John's gospel is that the stone has been removed is actually the word. Mary apparently doesn't stay there, and according to the text, she doesn't even go and look inside. She makes an assumption that something has happened, and then she runs, and she finds Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we know is probably John. She runs to them, and she says to them, so you can picture her now, I don't know how far it is, but she's out of breath when she gets there, and she runs to them and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Him. Now, the word we implies that maybe there were other women with her, but let's just set that aside for a moment. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She, all she knows is that the stone was not there, and she made this assumption. Now we get what I would like to see, think of as sort of a parenthesis in the story, because the next part is about Simon, Peter, and John, and Mary Magdalene is not mentioned for the next few verses. Why is that significant? I really think the way John tells this story, Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene is the main story. John and Peter are there for other reasons. One of the main reasons they're there is because in Jewish law, at that time, a fact could only be established if there were two male witnesses, So we need John and Peter as guys to say, we validate that the tomb was empty. There are two streams of evidence that the resurrection really happened. And sometimes I think Christians seem a little bit defensive about this for a good reason. We have said that somebody died and 36 hours later rose again. And our whole faith rests on that, that thing that happened on Easter Sunday morning. So if we seem a little defensive, it's like, Because we know this is unusual. We know it's unique in human history for this to happen. So what happens is we have two disciples who go, and they they take turns. Uh, John gets there first, probably because he's younger. People have made way too much out of that little detail. John gets there first, and he does what Mary did, and he kind of, uh, you know, looks inside there, but he's still standing outside. When Peter gets there, good old impetuous Peter, he barges right in and he looks around. And so these two male witnesses have now validated that the tomb is empty. So the two streams of evidence about the resurrection are always the objective evidence and the subjective evidence. The objective evidence is the tomb was empty. And if that's all you know, but nobody ever saw Jesus, you could say, well, somebody took his body away. So you need people to see him. But on the other hand, if you have people who saw Jesus, but you never saw the empty tomb, you could say, well, it was just a hallucination or whatever. But when you have an empty tomb plus eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive then you have these two streams of evidence that validate that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And these are told in all these four streams. So Peter and John go there and they look around and they, they don't see the angels or whatever that Mary's getting ready to see. And they, it says specifically about John that he saw and believed. And then inexplicably to me, they go back home. And somewhere in there, Mary shows back up. She probably got there after they did. And you go like, why did they go back home? Well, maybe they went back home because they were afraid. If you read past our passage into verse 19, it says that all the disciples were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Maybe they were afraid of being caught there. Maybe because John had taken Jesus into his home at the crucifixion, he went back to tell Mary, look, I saw and believed he's risen from the dead. But we're not told. The question is, why does Mary come back? And when she leaves, excuse me, when they leave, why does she stay? And I'm just going to tell you, it's usually men who ask that question. Why does she go there in the first place? Why does she come back? And why does she stay? So a man's perspective is, you can't do anything about it. So why hang around there? And a woman totally understands why you would want to go there and stay there. But I've also noticed that men who have experienced deep grief understand this better. Linda, my wife Linda and I walk in a cemetery on a fairly regular basis three times a week. And almost every time we go there, there's a man by the name of Sam. I'm going to say he's 70-ish years old. I've never seen him before. But we asked him one time who's interred there, and he said it's his wife, and she died 12 years ago. So you can imagine that she died way too soon. And Sam comes there three times a week, not just to uh, be there, but to take care of the place. He has Fertilized and seeded the ground. It's the best grass in the whole cemetery. He goes back and waters it. He mows it at least once or twice a week because this is the place where he just wants to connect with this wife that he lost way too soon. So it's more unusual for men until they've had an experience, uh, until they've experienced a loss, but for Mary and for most women, it's like, of course I would want to be there. Where else would I be than there? And that's how we find Mary Magdalene. So she comes back, the disciples have left, and when she comes back she is wailing. So this is one of the places where Bible translations sometimes don't pick up everything. And the NIV that we use around here, we read from a few minutes ago, said she was crying. Crying is way too mild. Crying can be there almost like this picture, and this is where I think the the picture is not dramatic enough. You can just be there with little tears you know, streaming down your cheek and you're whimpering a little bit. This is a word that indicates loud, audible lamenting. She is wailing as she stays there all by herself, and, and she's right outside the tomb. Now, still wailing, the text says, she decides she's going to do what John and Peter had done before, and she's actually going to look inside here and see what she can see. And when she does, she sees two angels who are in there. Now, the angels represent in all of these stories, anywhere they represent in the Bible, they represent the presence of God, the act of God. God is doing something here that nobody can duplicate. Otherwise, we don't really need angels in this story. we got the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But, but Mary needs to experience that, that, that a God thing has happened, and so there are these two angels. Furthermore, she sees that the grave clothes of Jesus have been, uh, are still there and that the cloth that had been wrapped around his head has been folded neatly. Now, this tells us a couple things. The main thing is that it tells us uh, nobody stole the body. You don't go into a, a grave and decide I'm going to move this body and strip it first of all of its grave clothes, especially when it's just been you know gone for a day or two. So nobody stole this body. Somebody sort of came through those grave clothes and left the tomb. And so this is Mary there, and she's still wailing. Remember, as she looks in and she sees these two angels, and they ask her, "Why are you crying?" Now again, I think her response is angry. I think she's hurt, I think she's upset. She's ticked off that Jesus is not there anymore and she basically her response sounds to me like why do I have to girl explain this to you? Do you not understand this? They have taken away the body of my lord and I don't know where they have put him. Try asking a woman when she's in labor like why are you crying? You're going to get a similar response. She's ticked off at them. You're angels and you don't know this, right? Now, then we're introduced to the presence of Jesus in this story. But the really cool thing, the way John tells this story, is that we know Jesus is there. And this is where we get to this moment here. But Mary doesn't know that Jesus is there. So Mary's still looking into the tomb and she's still mad at these angels and their question And Jesus speaks to her from behind, and she doesn't recognize him or his voice, and he says, he starts with the same question, but I sort of hear a twinkle in his voice, and maybe that's what calms her down a little bit. And he says to her, why are you crying, and whom are you seeking? And it's the second question that I'm sure she goes like, now there's a question I can answer. I can tell you that one. Why are you crying? Like, that's obvious, but whom are you seeking? I can tell you exactly there, and she comes out with a similar line again. They have taken away the Lord, but she thinks he 's the gardener, and so it 's a case of mistaken identity, and she goes like maybe you 're the guy that took him, so she, she pirouettes she 's been staring into the tomb, expecting to see jesus he wasn 't there. She pirouettes and looks at him, maybe she can 't see his face, maybe he 's higher than she is or whatever, but she doesn 't know it 's Jesus. And she says, if you'll tell me where you put him, I will go take care of him. I want to take care of this body. Now, why doesn't she recognize him? Again, there are a couple of possibilities, but in almost every resurrection appearance of Jesus, they don't see him at first until they know it's Jesus, and then they go like, duh, duh. So there's something about his his physical appearance that is the same but different. And this different grabs them first, whoever sees Jesus, and then they realize it's really the same. So again, we're talking about his resurrection body here that has some continuity but also some discontinuity. So again, she says to Jesus as she turns around, you know, they've taken away the Lord, my, my Lord, she says, and I'll take care of it if you'll just tell me where you've put him. And that's when Jesus speaks, and wouldn't you love to have a recording of this? Just says her name, Mary. Wouldn't you love to be in one of those moments where Jesus just says your name, Mary? And her response is in Aramaic, and we're told that just to remind us of the familiarity between the two, Rabboni is the same word as rabbi. It's just in a slightly different language. But she recognizes him and says, Rabboni. And at that point, something fascinating happens. That we don't really know exactly what's happening until the next verse, which I'm going to show you here in a moment. But she grabs hold of him. Now, how do I know that? Okay, so I want you to look at the the next verse here. I might need some help on a couple of these next slides. I might just point at you back there rather than the distraction of this. So I'll just point when I want you to switch, okay? So she says, and this is my favorite verse in the text, Do not hold on to me. Now, that's a fascinating word. The King James Version translated this, don't touch me, as if get out of my bubble, right? It's not that. It's don't grasp me. This is a word that actually implies they are in a deep embrace, like she grabs him. If you've ever pictured him as I, her, as I have of grabbing hold of his feet, that's a different story. It doesn't say she grabbed his feet. She grabbed him. And this word indicates such a a, a clinging, as it's translated in some places, that the word is even used of a sensual or sexual embrace. Now, there's nothing going on here like that, but that's what I want you to picture. She's actually wrapped him up in her arms. She's grabbed him. And he says to her, stop holding on to me. Stop clinging to me. And then, next slide, He has. We have the word for which is. He's going. We're not going to learn the reason that she's not to hold on to him, which is powerful for what's happening here. Next slide. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. What's going on there? What he's saying to her is, I am not the person you last saw. You think I'm back, and you think it's in the same form that you saw me before. I am a different Jesus. Now, not that I'm a different person, but I'm a transformed Jesus. And the person you think you're looking for and the person you're holding on to so that I will never leave you again is not the person that I was on the cross. I'm in a glorified body, and there's a new relationship that's going to happen here, and you need to stop holding on to the Jesus who is familiar to you. So I have not yet ascended to the Father. Something else is going to happen here. And then the next slide, go instead and tell them. So he says, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to them. Next slide. And who do you go to? My brothers. This is the first time in the Gospels where the disciples of Jesus are called brothers of Jesus. So there's a new relationship that's going to happen. And we see that again in this last part. Next slide. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Which again indicates that the relationship is going to be, they are on the same plane but different. So the same God that's yours is my God but we're not the same person, and the same father is yours and mine. We have a different relationship, but we can all call him father. You are my brothers, you're in my family. So there's no, he's not implying that they can become God or like him. He is implying that they can have a relationship with the father. So something has dramatically changed here that, they need to, that, that she needs to grasp, and by implication, this is written for you and for me. So then we have one more verse where, where Mary Magdalene, interestingly enough, he gives, the, he gives her an instruction of what to tell them, and she doesn't exactly say what he said. She goes to them and says, I have seen the Lord. This is a theme all the way through this text that Jesus is Lord, and on this day, that's so critical for who he is. So what does all this mean for us, and why would you come to church on Easter Sunday morning and the pastor says, I need you to let go of Jesus? Next slide. So there are four ways in which Mary needed to let go of Jesus, and maybe you need to let go of Jesus as well. Because again, the Jesus you need to let go of might be much less than the Jesus who really is risen, ascended, and glorified. So the first Jesus that Mary needed to let go and that you need to let go of is the predictable Jesus. So Mary thought, I know how this works, right? I know how life works. Messiah comes like everybody else. She kind of bought in this idea. He, he runs everything. And it wasn't in anybody's uh, imagination, even though Jesus had said that it would be, that, he, that Messiah would die. Messiahs don't do that. And after he died, it wasn't in anybody's mind, including Mary's, that he would rise again. I know what happens when people die. They stay dead. And instead, he comes back from. So everywhere in this story, it's turning, and Mary Magdalene has to let go of the predictable Jesus. And some of you need to let go of the predictable Jesus. You need to let go of the idea that I know how God works. I've seen him work in my life. I've seen him work in the Bible. I know how he does miracles. I know that if I do certain things that God will come through for me and we have to let go of the idea that God is somehow in a box or we can train him or he's obligated to us if we fulfill certain conditions to come through in a certain way. Because letting go of the predictable Jesus is one of the ways in which this story instructs us about our faith. Second, We need to let go of the indifferent Jesus. So, some of you, because of the experiences that you have had in life, begin to think God doesn't really know me. He doesn't care about my situation. I've prayed to him, I've asked him to do things for me, and he didn't come through. And this story teaches us that as Jesus says her name, it's only one word, it's only two syllables. But it is the power of a Jesus who not only knows your name, but knows your story. And when you begin to convince yourself because of whatever's happened in your life that God doesn't know me, and he's forgotten about me, or he knows but he doesn't care, this is one of the passages in the Bible that wants to bring you right back to the idea that yes, he does, and he will speak your name at the, at the moment when it's his time, when he, he knows that you need him the most. There was a family in our early service, two families actually, one of whom was uh, here worshiping together, and it was a family that just this past week, the heart donor family met the recipient of the heart transplant. So now you know that somebody died, a daughter died, and her heart was given to a a recipient, and those families wanted to worship together at Corinth this morning to celebrate that death and rising and the new life that came out of this deep tragedy. There was another family, we had a baptism this morning at 8.30 for a family that had a stillborn child at 38 weeks about a year and a half ago and found out last Easter they were pregnant with their second child and wanted that child baptized on Easter Sunday uh, as, a, as a way of just giving thanks to God. But you all have moments, you can imagine that in both families, there were times where they said, like, God can't be involved in my life. If God were really interested, if he were doing these things, God must be indifferent. And sometimes we have to let go of the indifferent Jesus so we can open our eyes to the new thing that God wants to do in our lives to bring hope and life and promise. Third, we need to let go of the tangible Jesus. That is, we need to let go of the Jesus who needs to show up in very visible ways. Oftentimes, the way God works is in in ways that are invisible to the human eye or to the human ear. So you remember when Jesus was with his disciples on the night before he died, and he was explaining to them the transitions that would happen. He said to them, and we don't know if Mary Magdalene was in the room or not, but Jesus is giving her the same lesson here. It is good for you, Jesus told his disciples that I go away, because if I go if I don't go away then the Holy Spirit will not come to you. So the message was the Holy Spirit is actually better than the physical Jesus. We have a hard time with that. We're going like I would rather have a Jesus I can, you know, see and talk to and ask questions and And that's what Mary was thinking. Like, I I want the Jesus back that I had. I'm going to hold on to him. I want him back. I'm not going to let him go. Do you realize that, unless I'm forgetting something, that after this moment, Mary Magdalene never did get to see Jesus physically again, as far as we know. So she seemed to have this sense, like, if I let go of you now, I'm never going to be able to touch you again. That's the point. And Jesus was telling his disciples, as long as I am here physically in the form you know me, then I can only be in one place at one time for one situation. And so today, if Jesus had stayed on earth physically, he could only be at Corinth, or he could only be at St. Luke's, or he could only be at St. Al's, or he could only be at Harvest Church. And if he were in Hickory, he could only be in Hickory. He couldn't be in Sri Lanka, where there are grieving people. He couldn't be in Paris, where they are also trying to find some sense of hope and promise. But because he ascended to the Father, he can be in all of those places at once by his Holy Spirit. So sometimes we have to let go that Jesus has to show up in physical ways in order for us to believe in him, because his new reality is so much more powerful and real. And finally... We need to let go of the comfortable Jesus because what Jesus does at the end of this story is he says, Mary, now that you've recognized me, I need you to go and tell my disciples. I'm going to move you somewhere else and I'm going to give you a job to do. So when Jesus gets a hold of your life and you really do recognize who he is and that he's back and that he's alive. He will not leave you where he found you. He will give you a new mission, a new direction, and he will require of you obedience in order that you might begin to take those next steps in discipleship. So if you came to church today thinking, I'm just going to go and hear about, good, Jesus is back, everything's happy again, it's that, but it's more than that. There's a Jesus who is so involved in your life, and he wants you to take this message and realize that he's not going to leave you there. There are new steps of faith and obedience for you to take. So I want to go back to those stained glass windows in the basement down in the dungeon, and I want to show you again that this is what they've looked like for 60 years down there. And I showed you the one on the right, but actually what intrigued me about these pictures and what got me involved in them is the one on the left, because... I have asked our committee to put the one on the left in my new office when we renovate the offices. Because my first thought was, you know, there's no more powerful image for a pastor than to have the parable of the sower. That's what we do, we sow seed. And when we went down to take the, the picture, I not only wanted to see the detail in Mary Magdalene and Jesus, I wanted to see the detail in this picture as well, and now I want you to see it. So you can ooh and ah now. And there were several things that grabbed me about this. One is that, that that the sower is kind of plain if I really want to be you know blunt he 's sort of ugly, and that just reminds me that, that, that when the seed is sown it 's not about the charisma or the appearance of the sower it isn 't at all right, nor is it about you know, uh, the, nor is it ab- about what he or she can sow, what they can do what I saw for the first time when the light actually came on it was his handful of seed and the seed being scattered. And that really is my role every day. It's your role every day, but it's my role particularly on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Because, you know, for many years of ministry, I would think, I got to really hit it out of the ballpark today, guys. You know, there can be all these people in church and I got to have my best sermon ever. And when I think that way, it really is about me and my performance. And somewhere along the line, I began to release that idea that it's not about how well I do as a preacher. My job is simply to scatter the seed. And the parable of the sower reminds me and you that the power of transformation happens in the soil. What kind of soil are you? And some of you will leave here as hard-hearted soil Say, none of that matters to me and let it just go away. Some of you will leave here as what Jesus calls distracted soil with thorns and and, uh, interference in the soil. But some of you will leave here allowing the Word of God, the seed is the Word of God, to penetrate deep into your heart because Jesus has met you today, not because of the preacher, but because of the Word of God and the power of this story. The power of this moment where Jesus met a woman and the last thing she was expecting was for Jesus to meet her. But he was there and he was ready to encounter her and her heart was receptive to meeting the master and allowing him to change everything. That's my prayer for you today. Let us pray. And if you have encountered today a Jesus that you need to let go of, The really good news is he loves it when you just admit that and you say, Jesus, I've been holding on to the wrong version of you and you're so much greater than that. Just say that to him. And then open your heart to know that this Jesus who died for your sins on Friday afternoon so that he might provide the only way to God rose again on Sunday morning and is Lord of all. Receive him as Savior and Lord. Or Renew your commitment to not have a comfortable Jesus, but one who will not leave you where you are and who requires of you a fresh passion to believe him in all things and to obey him in every part of your life. Oh God, thank you for the power of the word of God. Holy Spirit, you have given the scripture to us with stories and proverbs and letters and sayings and prophets and laws which just point us to you. And here's another wonderful example of the word of God. May the word of God penetrate deep into our lives and hearts and be watered and fertilized and grow and bear fruit in those of us who have come to hear it today.